Peace be upon you. So there was this movie I loved uh, watching when I was growing up called Searching for Bobby Fischer, and it's about a child chess prodigy based on a true story of an individual by the name of Josh Waitzman. In the final match of the movie, the main character was competing in a chess match against his opponent. And during the end of the match, he realized that he already won the game. He was able to extrapolate the play and saw that he wins. So he explained this to the opponent and offered a draw, except the opponent looked at the board thinking he had the upper hand and passed on his offer only to find out that he was actually doomed and should have taken the offer when he had the chance. The reason I'm bringing up this movie is because recently I started reading a book by Eric Metaxas entitled, Is Atheism Dead? The main argument of the book is to point out all the overwhelming scientific evidence that has been piling up against atheism that points to a creator. The evidence is so strong that the atheist's only hope for survival is to try to suppress this information before it becomes more widely known by the masses. But this is only a matter of time before the inevitable outcome comes to pass. And reviewing this evidence makes us feel like Josh Waitzman in the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, where we already see all these puzzles falling into play. And it's just a matter of time before the outcome, the inevitable outcome, comes to be. And what I want to do in this episode is look at some of these uh, items that are brought up that we also discussed in uh, previous episodes, just so we can marvel at the magnificence of God and his creations. In Surah 21, verse 30, it reads, Do the unbelievers not realize that the heavens and earth used to be one solid mass, that we exploded into existence, and from water we made all living things, would they believe? Today, the concept of the Big Bang is considered a scientific fact. But how we came to understand this requires a series of marvelous coincidences. Earth is the only planet in the entire solar system that has the vantage point to be able to witness a perfect solar eclipse. But it's also the only planet in the entire solar system that has the intelligent life to appreciate such a marvelous event. And it's just a coincidence that the Earth, the Moon, the Sun, that the proportions are perfect, such that the Moon is 400 times smaller than the Sun, but 400 times closer, that from the vantage point of the Earth, the size of the Sun and the Moon are almost identical. And at the right time, when these cross over, the Moon perfectly blocks out the Sun, leaving only the chromosphere of the Sun. And consider that each year, the moon's orbit shifts by about one inch, meaning that if we lived, take everything else equal, and we just shift the timeline of the human being by a few million years into the future or the past, these proportions wouldn't work out to the sophistication we have today. So we just happen to be living on the one planet at the exact time when we can witness a perfect solar eclipse. So what's the big deal about a perfect solar eclipse? Yeah, it's mesmerizing. Yeah, it's awe-inspiring. But it's realistically a cosmic experiment that God allows us to view, again, from this placement on this planet. That these proportions allow the moon to perfectly block out the sun, leaving only the chromosphere of the sun. And from witnessing the chromosphere of the sun using spectroscopy, we can determine that the sun and stars at large are made out of hydrogen and helium. But there was another experiment that was able to be conducted 
through the use of a perfect solar eclipse, which was the confirmation of Einstein's theory of general relativity. What scientists did was they went and they observed the positions of stars at the moment of a perfect solar eclipse, because this is the one time when you can block out the sun's rays and be able to see the stars that are placed behind the sun. And the theory goes that if gravity, the, the sun's mass, bent space-time, then technically these stars should be shifted lower, closer towards the sun than they would be if the sun wasn't in their way. And what they found out was when they went back to that same location, during nighttime, when the sun's mass was not interfering with the light, that these stars shifted upwards, meaning that this confirmed Einstein's theory of general relativity. So these two tidbits, the makeup of stars and Einstein's theory of general relativity, allowed us to look at the cosmos. And what we saw was that the stars, when we're looking at them, they had a red shift. And what this indicated was that the stars, based on this red shift into the red spectrum of light, were indicating that these stars were traversing millions of light years away from the Earth. And it just happened that the stars that were further away were traveling proportionally faster than the stars that were closer. And when we extrapolated all this backwards, what we realized that if you took all these objects, that if you move them in the reverse direction, so the ones that were farther away that are traveling faster and the ones that are closer that are traveling slower, you put all that in reverse, what you get is that at some point, about 13.8 billion years ago, all the heavens and the earth, all the observable universe was condensed down to one solid mass, the singularity. And this was all achieved because we were able to see a perfect solar eclipse. Now, could we have achieved this some other way? Potentially. But for if we shift these scientific discoveries, let's say by 50 years, 100 years, how would that impact the overall society and technological advancement of our understanding of the universe at large? Again, the Quran repeats, do the unbelievers not realize that the heaven and the earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence? So it's confirming the Big Bang in the verses of the Quran. And it continues, and from water, we made all living things. Would they believe? It is an established fact that water is absolutely necessary for life, specifically liquid water. Water has certain amazing physical properties. These are just the physical properties of water that if it was structured in any other way, would not allow life to be able to ever emerge anywhere in the universe. For instance, water behaves as a universal solvent. It has the ability of breaking down minerals and elements that are locked up in rocks and deposits and traverse those throughout the entire earth. So therefore that it could reach places where it's essential for these ingredients in order to form life. The viscosity of water is only second to mercury. And because of this, it keeps water from being able to sink too deep into the ground where we can't reach it. And it also, because of this viscosity, is able to move up capillaries, like within vessels of blood, but also within the, uh, the veins of trees and plants in order to be able to defy gravity to get to where it needs to go. Water also behaves in other strange ways. For instance, most properties, when they get cold, they become more dense, and when they heat up, they become less dense. Water behaves in that manner right up to the point of about freezing, at which point it becomes less dense and it expands. 
And the beauty of that is that this keeps life underneath the waters from being able to survive and not being frozen over. But there are other benefits to this. When water seeps into a rock, it's less dense and it is able to uh, uh, wedge its way through the small crevices and cracks of a rock. But then when it freezes over, it expands. And this causes the rock to crack and release all the minerals that are locked up in the center of that rock, which again is essential for the, uh, the circulation and the depositing of these minerals to where it's needed in order to form life. And we can continue looking at the multitude of facets of water, but there's one specifically that was called out in this book that I wanted to highlight on. And that is how water interacts with the electromagnetic light spectrum. The electromagnetic light spectrum can range from gamma rays, which have a wavelength of 10 to the minus 14, to radio waves, which can be have wavelengths kilometers long. It just happens that water absorbs most all the light spectrum, except for a tiny band known as visible light, which are light waves that are between 380 nanometers to 780 nanometers, which is the light that we see uh, color through. So all other spectrums of light are blocked, except for this narrow band of light. The reason this is so amazing is because this narrow band of light is exactly the band that is necessary for photosynthesis to take place. That if it wasn't for this physical property of water, and let's say for instance that it, it, it allowed gamma rays or x-rays, uh, what would happen is that it would absolutely obliterate any possibility of organic material because the energy density within that wavelength of light would destroy organic material. And if it blocked, let's say, the wavelengths above visible light, the wavelengths there do not possess enough energy to sustain photosynthesis. So it just happens that the one tiny, tiny band of light that water allows through just happens to be the one band that is necessary for life. And this goes both for the, the water in the atmosphere that could impact life on Earth, but more importantly, the life that resides within water, because that is most likely where the original life forms began. And not only that coincidence, but it just happens that the sun, out of all the, the spectrum of light that it could emanate, that 70% of the light that the sun emits is that of the visible light band. Now, let's try to put this in perspective of just how absolutely astronomical this is. If we were to place the entire electromagnetic light spectrum in, represented in the form of cards, so let's say you have a room key for a hotel room and you start stacking cards on top of one another. How many cards would you have to stack in order to represent the full gamut of the electromagnetic spectrum? You would have to stack those cards from the planet Earth all the way to the next closest galaxy in the universe called Andromeda, which is 2.5 million light years away. So now you have a stack of hotel room keys that goes from planet Earth 2.5 uh, million light years uh, high. And from that stack, you select only two cards. That is how narrow the visible light spectrum is. That is how finite it is that this is the, the visible band that uh, water allows to pass through while all other bands are blocked. 
And it just happens that this is also the predominant band that the sun physically emits out of the entire light spectrum that it provides. The cosmic coincidence of this is mind-boggling. Can you imagine that you had to access a hotel room? And in order to do so, you had this stack that's 2.5 million light years uh, tall. And from that stack, you would have to select the exact room key in order to open your room. And that's just the first step in order to be able to have sustainable life. Secondly, the fact that the sun, again, 70% of the light that it emits is of this physical band is as if the same thing happened twice. What is the probability that both these aligned so perfectly? Because if you have water with this property, but no sun, then again, you wouldn't have life. But if you, again, had the, the uh, sun without water having this property, again, you would have no life. So these coincidences had to have been perfectly designed with such precision that, again, it makes us marvel at the magnificence of God. And it's not just that it accepts this narrow band, but that it rejects, it absorbs the other bands that could be harmful for organic life, that it blocks out gamma rays and x-rays. Because again, if these were allowed to be able to enter into our atmosphere, they could wreak havoc on life, especially early on. In Surah 21, verse 32, it reads, And we rendered the sky a guarded ceiling, yet they are totally oblivious to all the portents therein. This fine-tuning argument is considered by many of the most prominent atheists as the most compelling evidence that uh, there is a creator and we're here by design, that this did not happen haphazardly. These coincidences are so astronomically precise that the slightest deviation from any of these parameters would cause the universe to cease to exist, let alone life to be able to flourish. The next one I wanted to point out has to do with the moment of the Big Bang and the precision of the amount of mass that is necessary at that time when the entire heavens and earth was one solid mass. Hugh Ross did the calculations to determine how much flexibility was there to shift the amount of mass in the total observable universe and still end up with the circumstances to be able to form stars and planets and galaxies. What he discovered was that the precision of the amount of mass that had to be perfectly calculated at the moment of the Big Bang is equivalent to one part in 10 to the 60th power. To put this in perspective, consider you had all the mass of the observable universe into one solid mass. How much flexibility do you have to increase or decrease that amount of mass such that when this explosion happens, when the Big Bang occurs, that you don't have too much mass where the universe implodes on itself or too little mass where it just expands and you don't have the formations of uh, stars and uh, planets and uh, galaxies? What Hugh Ross discovered was that this amount is equivalent to a single dime's worth of mass. Consider that if you increased the total mass in the observable universe at the moment of the Big Bang by more or less than the mass that is contained in a single dime, a single coin, that is enough to throw this perfect, precise explosion into whack, where you wouldn't have a physical, observable universe like we do now.
That is the level of precision that was absolutely necessary in order to have the outcomes to be able to form the stars, the planets, the galaxies, all the conditions necessary just to create the universe like we see it today. That something as insignificant as a dime off this tiny, tiny mass, only a few grams, is enough to determine the outcome of everything else. And that's in proportion to the entire visible universe, all the mass that we see. That is the level of precision that was necessary. God tells us in the Quran in Surah 41 verse 53, it says, We will show them our proofs in the horizons and within themselves until they realize that this is the truth. Is your Lord not sufficient as a witness of all things? God tells us throughout the Quran that He perfectly calculated everything, that not an atom is out of our Lord's control. And this allows us to realize the precision of everything that was necessary for us to even be here today having this discussion. And there's one last argument that I want to look at that is uh, portrayed in this book that is getting more and more attention every day. And this is with the topic of abiogenesis. How do you go from inorganic matter to life? You go from elements to all of a sudden you have a living, breathing organism. How did this process take place? The textbook example for showing how this process supposedly came uh, to be is from the Yuri Miller experiment that was conducted in 1952, where they showed that under certain circumstances, they were able to generate amino acids uh, with no, nothing else other than just the supposed atmosphere of the earth and some electricity. Now, needless to say, there was a lot of individuals who poured over the experiment to show uh, inaccuracies in the way that it was conducted. But nevertheless, in a span of 70 years, we've never been able to show how you go from amino acids to living, breathing entities. Over 70 years, it's not just that we have not been able to prove how this could be without a designer things have actually gotten progressively harder to prove how this is feasible without a designer. Of how you can go from amino acids to a functional living cell. For the longest time, individuals used to make the case for what they called a RNA world hypothesis, that perhaps RNA rather than DNA was the starting for uh, life. Except RNA is highly reactive and does not survive long. This is widely seen with the rollout of the COVID mRNA vaccines, which originally required extreme cold of minus 70 degrees Celsius to be stored. And now after years of research and development, they're able to get the mRNA more stable at higher temperatures. But this did not happen haphazardly. This required billions of dollars, thousands and thousands of hours of researchers and scientists to try to figure this out. But the reality is in the wild, without the luxury of labs and scientists in precise conditions, you're at the whims of nature, where these things are not perfectly situated to be able to harness and sustain these transition points, to go from inorganic matter to a living, breathing cell. God gives us the most profound argument in the Quran. It's in 2273. It says, O people, here is a parable that you must ponder carefully. 
the idols you set up beside God can never create a fly, even if they banded together to do so. Furthermore, if the fly steals anything from them, they cannot recover it. Weak is the pursuer and the pursued. You can give the best scientists, give them all the resources, all the wealth, all the, the, the technology they want, and have them construct a fly from scratch. They will never be able to do this. And God goes one step further, that even if they were able to do this, if the fly stole anything from them, took a morsel of food, that they would never be able to recover that. And it says, weak is the pursuer and the pursued. God has blessed our generation with so much amazing knowledge and insight, both in the scientific advancement and in our understanding of the Quran. And all this does is it raises our responsibility. Are we going to be reverent? Are we going to believe? Are we going to be good submitters and uphold the laws of God? Or are we going to continue down the path of heedlessness and misguidance? At this point, it's so blatantly obvious that there is a God, that there is a Creator. The question is, who is God? What are the characteristics of our Creator? And where do we go from here? And all those answers are embedded inside the Quran. The Quran is riddled with scientific information for us to be certain that the information we're getting is from our Creator, that this was not something that the Prophet came up from himself, that he was divinely inspired from God, Lord of the universe, to disseminate to all of us so we have the unaltered Word of God for ourselves that answer all these fundamental questions of why we're here, what our purpose is, and where we are going to end up in the hereafter. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS app store or go to the QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you like the podcast, please share it with other people. Leave us a review. And until next time, peace and God bless. You've lost. You just don't know it. I've lost. Look at the board. I have. Take the drawer, and I'll share the championship. Take the drawer. Move. Check.
Good game.